You're listening to Inside the Boardroom, powered by Onboard. I'm your host, Adam Wire. Today, we chat with Tim Cap, co-founder of Capital Partners Network, founder of Cinco AI, and a thought leader in artificial intelligence. Tim will discuss the connection between AI and cybersecurity, how people are using AI already in ways they don't even know, and more. Uh, welcome to another uh, episode of Inside the Boardroom presented by Onboard. Uh, my name is Josh Palmer. I'm your host, the head of content for Onboard. Today, we're uh, joined by Tim Cap, who is a, uh, a leading uh, thought leader in a leading thought leader in, in AI machine learning. Uh, Tim Cap, welcome to the show. Thanks, Josh. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, you're you're a, a thought leader and a, a, a obviously an innovative mind in, in the space of AI. Uh, you're a co-founder of a capital markets network, uh, the founder and principal of Cinco AI. Uh, that's at Cinco.ai. Uh, you're also the co-chair for the AI for Good Innovation Factory. We'll, we'll uh, talk about that more. You're also a, a founding member of the U.S. National AI and Security uh, Information Sharing. Uh, I'm going to flub this acronym: Information Sharing and. <laughs> NAIC, National AI and Cybersecurity uh, ISO, Information Sharing and Advisory Organization. Great. Um, can you tell us a little bit what, what all those things mean, especially the, the ISO? I, I'm really interested in that connection between AI and cybersecurity and, and how you contribute there. Yeah. So, so let me go through the list really quickly. Uh, one <laughs> I think you missed is I, I, I'm a professor of AI, an adjunct professor at the University of Utah which I, I love, I, I, that's probably my favorite role. I love teaching AI. I love sharing what's happening there. Um, I uh, founded uh, Cinco AI, which partners with companies to build AI solutions. So companies that don't have internal teams, we often partner with them to, to uh, uh, build solutions that where they're the vertical expert and, and we come in and support their team with, with specialized AI uh, developers. Um, AI for Good, we'll talk about, that's one I absolutely love. It's a, a UN-sponsored group um, that uh, basically is trying to identify and promote any companies, uh, often not-for-profits, that are using AI to just do great things in the world, to, that follow you know, or supporting one of the 17 uh, UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So it could be hunger, it could be poverty, it could be education, any one of those goals. And so that's something that that's uh, you know pretty close to my heart. Um, and then and then the National AI and Cybersecurity ISO. The ISOs were organizations uh, set up by executive order during the Obama administration. And there's ISOs for different industry groups. And the goal of the ISO and the ISACs, which is a, something similar, is to protect the critical infrastructure of the United States. And so in our particular ISO, uh, we are worried about the, the crossover between AI and cybersecurity. Uh, we're trying to keep AI safe from being hacked and also uh, prevent AI from being the hacker. So uh, there's some interesting stuff there. And, we, and we'll mention that, um, you know, we may talk about this new executive order from the president, and there's some things relevant to that as well. Yeah, and, and just to to put some some context or some historical uh, timing around this, you know, we're we're uh, recording this in uh, late November or early November twenty three, um, which is just about you know almost a full year into the the, the public uh, access beta launch of OpenAI, when a lot of companies and individuals like myself um, first got to interact with AI. Um, 
And one of the reasons we're so excited to talk with you is because you, you know about this disruption. You're seeing it at, at multiple levels. You're teaching your students. You're advising uh, the executive branch on on um, some of the um, um, the just the guardrails that might ne- might need to be, be put in place. Uh, but without a doubt, AI is, is disruptive technology. And, and you say that um, you know you brought some some clips with you uh, that say you know maybe people aren't thinking about this the right way, or maybe people are, are not taking this as seriously as they should. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, maybe we could we could play that clip. But uh, we have a clip here that, you know, I was just going through TikTok and and uh, I saw a clip of a, a, you know, a CEO of a technology company, surprisingly, um, who started commenting on where we are with AI. And I couldn't I don't think I could disagree more. I think this provides a great example of, you know, you and you and I have discussed this before that. Um, when the internet came along, there were a lot of people, including myself, who said, what's the big deal? Um, you know, when you do traditional financial analysis on these things, it, sometimes it doesn't quite make sense. But when you see a disruptive technology of this size and magnitude, um, you've got to pay attention. And, and so this video kind of illustrates, um, you know, my concerns about people not paying enough attention or not completely understanding what's about to happen. And the period that we're going to go into, like, like you mentioned, um, we're in this odd period where we've been doing AI and predictive analytics for years. Traditionally, that meant predictive analytics. It meant, you know, can I forecast the number of calls coming to my call center? Can I, can I estimate the price of a stock in the future? Or maybe we got as advanced as predicting Bitcoin prices. Um, it was just always a fun exercise. But now we're in this new era. We've kind of jumped over suddenly and very suddenly um, into what we're kind of referring to as the the era of armchair AI, where anyone can use these tools. And because anyone can use it, now everyone's aware of it. And and so now AI is just in this period of renaissance or disruption, whichever way you want to look at it. And uh, my worry and what I what I think I really want executives to know and, and board members is is you've got a choice right now. Your industry is going to see this. There's no question. I, every industry I've talked to is seeing some form of AI. There is going to be disruption. We're going to be in a massive period of disruption, probably for the next 10 years, but especially the next three. And and we're just at this stage where leaders, we need a new kind of leader. We've, we've gone from a technical leader that needed to know how to do stuff and we need leaders now that know, understand how to bridge that to a business strategy. And that's where boards and uh, senior executives really need to get involved. Um, yeah. Is helping bridge that. Okay. Let's uh, let's play the clip. And this is something you say is, is kind of antithetical to, to the, the probably the, the <laughs> attitude or the ethos that some uh, board and business leaders need. To but generative AI is not actually that useful. What happened in January was that technology or sort of a, a framework for building models that had been developed in 2017 was sort of put online with an interface by Microsoft slash OpenAI who have to be understood as the same entity, right? And the chat GPT interface kind of gave people a simulated experience of like, oh my God, I'm talking to kind of a human. It's spitting out nonsense, but it's spitting it out. And this feels kind of sentient, right? And on the backs of this advertisement, for their GPT API, which they sell through their Azure cloud services. 
they sort of generated an entire new hyped narrative around generative AI as this sort of future-facing technology that's going to change every industry. But what does it do, right? It, you know, presents visual images that are often, you know, stolen from artists or like far too close for comfort. And it presents plausible text, right? It infers what's the sort of plausible response to a prompt based on, you know, mountains of data from the internet, the Reddits, the 4chans, you know, the Stormfront is in there, as Natasha's work has shown, you know, and, and kind of presents text that looks plausible but has no relationship to facts, has no relationship to reality, has no citations, right? So what is this useful for? It's not useful in most serious contexts. Yeah, you could, re you know, replace a junior copywriter, but you better have a senior copywriter who's checking that text because it's going to be janky. Oh, sorry. Play it again. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I would disagree on a, a number of fronts. As somebody who's um, experienced and, and worked with with AI and generative tools, um, I, I think she certainly uh, de defines some of the guardrails or some of the limitations. But uh, I think the other uh, the other side of that coin is that this technology and, and its public launch is is very early. It's it's fairly early in the you know the democratization, as you, you called it, the armchair AI phase. Um, and there's still lots of opportunity to, to define what this, this technology can do and what it's actually going to disrupt. Um, yeah, I, I, I would love to hear your rebuttal to her comments. <laughs> well, I mean, we can almost take this, you know, line by line. I, I, we won't need to go into everything, but um, so a couple things. She starts off by saying this came from a paper in 2017. Now, again, there's lots of forms of AI. What she's specifically referring to is large language models. That's one form of AI. And that's this cool chat GPT kind of stuff that we're seeing right now. But that's just one form. And it, it did come out as a published scientific paper in 2017. And it, it just started reaching maturity. And that's normal. Okay, that's very normal for any published paper to suddenly to, to slowly be come out and, and, you know, for the application to be realized. But within our community, it's always been very disruptive. People knew this was coming for a number of years and they've been working on it. So um, she's seeing it as a member of the public, you know, again, armchair AI. She's not seeing what happened in those five years and that though a lot of work was being done just like any other technology. Um, she talks about it being a simulated experience, which it is. It is a simulated experience. But let's talk about where we are already. Like, for example, there's already applications out there going under scientific testing in which uh, people, for example, with depression or, or suicidal tendencies or things like that, people that need psychological help are turning to apps. And they aren't, these apps aren't doctors, they're not psychologists, but we found that they are useful. The 24-7 nature of these apps means if someone is suicidal, they can get instant help. And mm -hmm. that's better than no help. That's better than waiting a day or waiting a couple days. And so that's just an example. But in further testing, they're finding this stuff actually really works. And even though the human knows it's simulated, um, they're having real conversations. Um, she talked about images, and this is a different technology. Um, there she's talking about uh, diffusion technology where we're creating images from text. And it involves LLMs, but um, and, you know, she's talking about images stolen from artists. Well, that's, first of all, that's not entirely true, or that's not true. Um, these images are being trained on other art, but that doesn't mean they're replicating or reproducing that artwork. Um, right. Now, certainly you can say, do something in the style of an artist, but my father is an artist. He's a professional artist and, and uh, he loves the quote that's at least attributed to uh, 
Pablo Picasso, that what is it? Great artist, uh, good artist. I can't remember. Good artist, good artist copy, painting. great artist steal. Yeah, it's one of my yeah, favorite. Great artist, great artist steal. Okay, you know the the quote. And the point being, they don't really steal. But I, you know, even as humans, we're constantly inspired, and that's a better way I think to say it by what other people have taught us, and what, what we've seen out there in the world. Um, and it, everyone does this. And and AI, in my opinion, really isn't doing anything different than we do as humans in that case, but it is certainly not copying and stealing images uh, or yeah. music or, or anything like that. Speaking of Renaissance, a lot of those artists were, were trained by each other and their styles look very similar. I, I mean, there's just another parallel there, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, another line she talks about, she says, it's text that looks plausible, but has no relationship to facts or reality. There couldn't be, this couldn't be more further from the truth. And when these models first came out, there was this concept of hallucinations, which has been talked about very broadly. And what we learned is that these models were actually thinking more like us than we thought, and that that's what was causing the hallucinations. If you ask a very lengthy or difficult to understand question, it's going to try to answer it for you unless you tell it not to, unless you tell it to tell me what you don't understand. It'll always try to answer. That's what it's trained to do. Um, but it literally in the last six months, um, you know, we've really figured out how to avoid hallucination. So with a little, it turns out it was mainly training the, the person asking, not the, not the fixing the AI. Um, and so a great way, you know, I always think of it as, you know, talking to a teenager, ask a question as if you're talking to a teenager, you know, who you need to understand exactly the steps of something to get done. And it usually is is really good and it will give real facts and it will give, um, you know, it does have, uh, it is connected to real facts and reality and it's just getting better. Yeah. And I would, I would argue there too, Tim, that it's, it's also, I mean, kind of the old uh, computer human interaction um, foundation is a computer will only do what you tell it to do. Right. Um, yeah. So th those prompts and, and defining and getting those prompts really, um, um, ordered or sequenced, as you say, in the right way is really important. You should also notice that uh, uh, Meredith Whitaker, the, the president of Signal, who is attending that Washington Post live summit that we just clipped from, she seems to be talking about it in the, in the, the context of you know news reporting or pop, pop, perhaps copywriting or creative expression, those types of things. Um, but we know there's whole industries that have already been disrupted by AI, and there's, there's industries that have been using AI for, for decades now. Uh, your your background in finance and trading is a great example. Uh, we recently spoke with Megan Anzalk, who is a uh, an AI uh, thought leader. Uh, her background is in property and casualty insurance. Uh, AI has been used for actuarial tables there for for years and years. Um, you know, even just looking at the interface of our podcast platform here, I, I see a, a little uh, pop up for a chatbot. Uh, those chatbots have been using uh, AI for, for years to predict and, and interact with people in, in real kind of normal conversations or chats. Um, so I'm curious if do you feel like because now it's publicly accessible, uh, you know, so to speak, the, the, the curtain's been opened, then now people have all these questions or that they did not realize that they were interacting with AI for, for years and years now already? Yeah, I think, you know, you just look at your phone and I've counted up. So the other day I did an experiment uh, for my students and we walked through um, what a typical morning would look like. And we counted at least 40 interactions before 7 a.m. that I had with AI, not knowing it. Um, 
you know, for example, it's predicting what apps, you know, I get my phone, it predicts what apps I want to see first in the morning. I go mm -hmm. to YouTube, I often do a meditation in the morning of some kind, and it will, it will find the, the meditations that I like, it will find the particular user. And if I look at it in the, in the morning, it brings up a particular thing that I often listen to in the morning. If I look at it in the afternoon, it brings up a different set of videos that I would, you know, technology related videos that I do at a different time of day. Um, and so there's all of these interactions that we're just not familiar with. Um, we don't realize they're going on. When you look at your phone and open it, that's AI. And most of these AIs are not large language models. They've been, we've been slowly building them into applications for years now. Um, but they, they are becoming more known because of large language models. So ChatGPT kind of opened Pandora's box, if you will. It just said, it made everyone aware of everything that's been already happening. And LLMs were just kind of that, uh, the frosting on top of a cake that's already baked. Right. So. <clears throat> and so that, that brings us to, I mean, and obviously uh, as that clip was from TikTok, that's a, I mean, that is just a huge AI driven algorithm that, that um, just creates really, um, I don't know what you'd call it. Just, uh, just, just rabbit holes of experiences where you look up and it's two hours later, you've been watching 20 different videos and they're all great, but you don't know why you're, why you're being served the next video, but it, it keeps your, your attention engaged. Um, we, we talked about before the, the show, um, the executive order that uh, President Biden just uh, released, uh, trying to address some of these concerns about AI and how, how disruptive it could be. I was wondering if you could give us kind of the, uh, the summary of that order and, and what that means for your, for your industry and your, uh, thought leaders in, in the AI space. Yeah, so so um, I, we're all trying to understand it ourselves. Um, so this past summer, the Biden administration, they've been really good at this. Uh, this is something that President Biden's been very interested in. And uh, so all summer, they've been asked, sending out requests for information from experts in the field saying, give us your feedback. And so this isn't, you know, the government coming and just saying, hey, we're mandating this and we don't know anything about AI. They've really done a great job researching this. Um, and so uh, let me let me share high level bullets. Um, you know, I think there's six of them here or so that, that are gonna change how we think about things. So one is they're gonna require that developers of the most powerful AI systems share their safety tests, uh, share the safety test results and other critical information with the US government. They just, everyone wants to be sure that we are doing proper safety testing and safety testing, you know, we're not necessarily, you know, it sounds like we're, we're expecting, uh, you know, Skynet to come down on us. We're not. Safety testing means we've got to be sure it's not, you know, racially prejudiced. We've got to be sure it's, it's giving answers that don't cause people harm. Um, it, it, I, I turn to chat GPT often for medical information and it has proven to be in, in recent testing, it's been proven to be as good as your general practitioner at making recommendations, but we've got to be careful. We don't want someone coming in there and, and adding some new fake concept about health and having it start diagnosing people. You know, they're very careful about that kind of thing. So we're just got to be very careful. Uh, the second one is they are going to develop standards, tools, and tests to help ensure that AI systems are safe, secure, and trustworthy. And again, same kind of thing. We've just got to make sure that things are safe, that we're not giving people bad information that could cause harm. Um, next one is protect against the risks of AI, of using AI to engineer dangerous biological weapons. 
that's a real concern. AI is everywhere in the pharmaceutical industry now. Um, as you can imagine, we can, if we can predict what, what drug trials are likely to succeed before they go to trial or have the highest degree of probability, then we can save pharmaceuticals millions. And, and pharmaceuticals have really embraced this technology. But now imagine that same technology, you know, cooking up something that's dangerous. That's a worry. And it could, you know, it's, it's just pharmacy used for bad. Um, the next one is protect Americans from AI-enabled fraud and deception by establishing standards and best practices for detecting AI-generated content and authenticating official content. So let me give you a couple examples here. Um, one might be fake press releases of a public company. You know, how easy would that be to generate? Or fake, you know, just fake news in general is incredibly easy to generate from this. Um, and so they just want to make sure that that's done. They also want watermarking on this. Um, there are some issues where content is getting out there and people aren't aware of that. And some, some newspapers have started doing this voluntarily. Um, but they want a watermark saying that an AI generated this. So, yeah. for example, most sports content, most written sports content, newspapers, things like that, has been generated by, by AI for four to five years now. Most people don't realize it. Games are really easy to summarize. Uh, they follow patterns and they're easy to summarize. So even before ChatGPT, we were articles on games are being written and and you know, writers, senior writers at news or writers at news agencies have been being laid off for almost four years now on a regular basis. Um, next one really quickly, establish an advanced cybersecurity program to develop AI tools to fix, to find and fix vulnerabilities in critical software. So that's a real great area of research right now. And that's part one, uh, you know, I'm involved in is just, can we use AI to protect you know, from vulnerabilities, because now AI can write code. So I use this on a daily basis to help me write code. And I was scared to death the first time I saw someone say, write me a, write me a, uh, you know, a bug, something I can use to, to hack into someone's computer. And there it was. Um, so now people that can't even code well can write code, can, can do that. Um, and then uh, last one is uh, they're, uh, they're going to order the development of a national security memorandum that directs further actions on AI and security. So uh, this relates to the military. You know, we have seen our first, uh, there has been the first death. I don't know how many now, but I know about a year, year and a half ago, we saw the first death from AI where a, a fully autonomous AI drone, fully autonomous, not human controlled, was allowed to, to uh, you know, kill someone. It was not a U.S. controlled drone. I believe it was an Israeli drone, um, but it was a fully autonomous drone. And so those are the things we just got to be really, you know, very careful about. I don't think there's anything in this order that is going to bind us or prevent innovation. It's just to put security around it. And, and I love that the government um, and the Biden administration in particular are trying to, you know, take a lead on this. Yeah, and it, just in the in the the bullet points you just discussed, there's a, just a, a sweeping number of industries that are are being impacted here, and we, you know, everything you mentioned, some of the anecdotal examples, uh, you know, you know, uh, fake, fake, uh, deep fakes or, or uh, fake voices used to scam people. There's, you know, I think people would be familiar with the headlines of you know Tom Hanks saying, "I'm not selling these things on the internet," or Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, suing over her voice being used. We've heard of book authors saying, hey, uh, my text was used to, to train AI. Now it's appearing in AI. Um, so there's IP issues. There's security issues you mentioned. Uh, there's national security issues you mentioned. Uh, what what I think is alarming, and I, I think you would share this alarm, is that the vast number of boards, uh, what, no matter the sector, nonprofit, you know, public corporations, banks, credit unions, healthcare, higher education, uh, when we've polled them, you know, less than half have even addressed AI in the boardroom as a board level topic, uh, despite all these sweeping changes that are either coming or, or have uh, heretofore come. Uh, I'm curious how, how you approach that when, when you speak with boards and leaders of organizations, uh, you know, how do you uh, contextualize the, the impact and the disruption that, that AI is going to have on these organizations? Well, the way I like to contextualize it is by making comparisons to what we've seen before. That seems to be what most people want. And so um, the first thing you mentioned, I, I don't think most people understand the size of disruption. So, and when, when I speak about disruption, again, I'm an economist. I speak of disruption in terms of, you know, economic productivity. And uh, we're always looking for gradual in, in changes in economic productivity. And occasionally we see a big change like the steam engine, you know, electricity, the car, the automobile, things like that. So let's put that in perspective. Um, there's a chart and unfortunately I don't have it with me, so I'll describe it. There's a chart that Kathy Woods and uh, a research group. So Kathy Woods is, is behind ARC Investment. They put out a chart, and this is prior to large language models in ChatGPT, about a year prior, I think, 2023-ish, um, and so, or 2022. So in this chart, they show the expected economic disruption from, uh, from AI in general. And it shows that, and, it, and then it compares some of these other ones out there. And, it sh and their prediction is it will be larger than the impact of electricity. So think about the impact of electricity and its you know diffusion of electricity in the 1900s and what and what impact it had on us as a society and productivity. It allowed us to stay up later at night for one thing. So suddenly now we have extra hours of productivity at a massive impact. And the car, the automobile is about the same size. They're predicting that this individually in the next 10 years will be larger than electricity. So. Um, there's another group out. Most groups are some estimating somewhere between 15 trillion and 30 trillion dollars in increased productivity. Um, so to put that in perspective, that's, you know, I, I want to say that's by itself. Well, I'll put it in perspective. It's the it's it's like adding a new to the world, adding a new UK and Japan, the third and fourth largest economies in the world to the economy. Okay. That's how big of impact we're going to get. It's, it's like two new countries in 10 years and uh, they are two of the largest. And so it's going to be a massive impact uh, economically. Um, I'm already seeing, you know, it, it's going to affect different people differently as a developer. It absolutely impa impacts me. I, a few months ago, I'd say I'm definitely 20% more productive now. I think I'm probably up to 40% now. And my entire development team is the same. We fully embrace this. And uh, we believe we're producing about 40% more usable code per day um, yeah. on what we're just doing. Anecdotally, I, I know from my experience with developers, it's not so much even just generating, you know, create this website for me or create this this process or this application. It's even 
bug fixes and, and filling in blank spots where code's not working, which is probably some of the most challenging parts of coding and development. Yeah. Um, you know, you turn it over AI, it solves the problem almost instantaneously. Yeah, I mean, I love the feature. I tell it, I write some code and I'm a terrible at commenting my code, which is useful for other developers. I make it comment the code and it does a better job than I do. Um, I just give it the code, say, explain to someone else what this thing does. And it's perfectly formatted comments. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, that speed, the, the, the size of that combined with the speed at which we're adopting, like you said, we've, we've had a year with this really. I mean, we've had many years with AI, but the speed that it suddenly got attention, the speed and the size is what's going to create just instant disrupt economic disruption. And I can't think of an industry that is not being impacted right now. I'm getting calls constantly from different industries, all different industries, um, and even some really odd ones you wouldn't think of. Um, I had someone call me from the food truck industry who, who wanted to figure out how to optimize food truck rallies with the right kinds of foods. Well, that's a great application. Um, you know, one of the more innovative ones I saw was someone doing garbage collection. And literally all they did is they put a camera over the garbage bins that they normally collect on a very cheap camera. You can buy these for $10 now. And uh, it monitored, it gave them a signal when the garbage can is full. So instead of rolling a truck every time these, uh, you know, every Tuesday or something, they just roll a truck now when the garbage is full. And it cut their costs significantly. And, and what we're going to see is um, the, some of the current estimates are there will be about a 30% cost reduction across the board, across industries. And so, as you can imagine, 30% cost reduction, um, that's going to fundamentally change, you know, disrupt and change who the leaders are. If I'm yeah. not a leader today and I think I've got a, in, an, in any industry and I can get a 30% cost advantage, let alone productivity advantage, um, clearly I'm going to be a leader tomorrow. Right. And I think that, that that kind of harkens back to to what we were talking about a little bit earlier of you know uh, disruptive technology. You mentioned electricity for uh, you know a more uh, um, present day scenario for for people who are old enough. The the advent of the internet. You know, early on we were just mentioning before the show. You know that Google could hardly find an investor because there was no uh, market for <laughs> for internet search in the early days of the internet. Um, how do you think that that leaders should um, kind of frame the, the risks and the benefits and the opportunities that are being presented here. Um, say you're an, you're an organization or in a sector that doesn't seem to be disrupted anytime soon or may not be feeling the disruption. Um, what, what is the best way to start framing the risk and the opportunities? So the way I like to do this, and this is where I think we need, we need a new kind of leader. And that's, that's kind of my call is I, we, we have these technical leaders who like me understand what AI can do. And our worry has always been, can we do something? There's with this new era, there's a new kind of leader that's required. And that's a, a leader that understands strategy. Like we talked about, um, we've got to have leaders who can, who are highly competent at strategy, but understand enough about AI to know where it's going to impact or how it can impact. They don't need to know the algorithms. They don't need to know the, you know, the details of how it works, especially the mathematics. Um, they just need to know what it, well, the options are, what kinds of technology, what kinds of AI models are there, and uh, like like we said with the you know the Wayne Gretzky quote, we've got to they've got to understand where the puck is going to be in in a few years and how it 
might disrupt their industries. And so, but the core value that they, this new group of leaders can offer is then taking that knowledge and translating it into a business strategy. So the way I like to frame this is I usually come in with, with, uh, you know, executives or boards, whoever, and I, I ask them the question, you know, ex explain your business strategy in particular, tell me two things. I want to know, how do you differentiate to a customer? And then, and then what's your growth strategy? And, and the first one is the most important. Um, if they can tell me how we differentiate, I then will go through and say, okay, now tell me of all the processes running in this organization, name three that support that. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to differentiate, tell me three processes in your organization that support that differentiation. And then we'll put those processes on the board. And then I go through and say, okay, forget AI and the rest of your company for now. Let's look at those three processes and where does AI fit? Where could AI be applied in those three processes? So that instead of, instead of saying, hey, we, there's this really cool technology out there. We're going to cram it into our company in some way or our organization. What you're asking is we know who we are as a company. We know our strategy. We know our processes. Now, how can we improve what we already know more using this technology? It's a support technology. It's not your company. And I think most boards finally, you know, they, they kind of, <laughs> they really appreciate that because they realize that's why they are where they are. They are the people that are good at doing this. Um, mm -hmm. But we, they need to understand what's about to happen and the disruption that everyone is about to face and then address it in the way they already know how to address it. Yeah, I love that you 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 tapped on their um, the just the the almost the 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 core of the efficiency games is is going to essentially be what what are either rote processes or, or repeatable processes already. So, like you said, the garbage truck route or um, you know coding something or uh, summarizing a large body of text so you don't have to read the every single comment or, or yeah. uh, you know feedback. A piece of feedback, you can get a summary of that or an executive summary of that using AI. Um, do you feel like uh, the the risk? I mean, is the op the opportunity obviously is you see a thirty percent uh, productivity gain, um, but the risk of not adopting um, is that something that you're you're talking to business leaders about now? They're like, oh, I'm not I'm not quite ready to uh, adopt AI. Uh, we'll, we'll take a wait and see approach, which is still a proactive approach, I would say. Um, but do you find that, that people are just gun shy about just kind of getting into the AI um, workflow, if you will? What I've found is is about 90% of, that was actually the number, I'm not just rounding a number here. We've done surveys and about 90% of, of, of CEOs, this was not done with boards, but I, th I think you have some data on boards. Um, about 90% of CEOs fully recognize that you know, AI is important and that at some point in the future, it will be disruptive. Okay. So that's good. Where we're having the block is they don't understand the size. They don't, and they don't understand what's the first step. How do I take the first step and get the ball rolling here? Because they, they still believe that the first step is a technical step that mm -hmm. someone like me has to solve. And it's not, the first step is a strategy step. And if once once we reframe it that way, it makes them a lot more comfortable that, okay, I have the right skills to, to do the strategy step. Now, what people hire me for that is most effective is I can come in and once they lay out the processes and things, you know, I can identify where things fit easily. That's, that's my job. That's what I do. Um, 
but I have to, I have to work with someone in the industry who knows the process, knows the dip, how they differentiate. And, and then we can, you know, the, we can find places to put that. So as far as your question about, um, disruption, um, I'll, let me give you this example. And it, it, it may or may not answer the question. A few years ago, there was a company called Lemonade. And I love, I, I use this example a lot because the summer this company was launched, and I want to say it was 2012 or 2015, I, I actually don't remember. There was mm -hmm. a big article saying the insurance market is too crowded. Players are going to start falling out of this market because it's way too crowded. And in that market, that same summer, like literally weeks after that article came out, Lemonade and there's one other company that, that launched in the insurance industry. You know, and if you're an investor, you think, oh, they would have no hope. It's already a market that people are predicting the big players are going to start falling out of. Yeah. And so Le Lemonade did exactly what we, we talked about. They came in and said, okay, what is our hypothesis? And it was that speed matters and that, that co companies... You know, up until that point, everyone was building buildings and, you know, large buildings and showing them off on TV as because stability is what mattered in the insurance industry. And these guys said, no, stability isn't what matters to a certain group of people. Speed matters and service matters. So they said, we're going to come in and uh, we're going to disrupt this industry and we're going to use AI to do it. So they had some very specific targets. And one of them I loved was the speed of, of a claim being processed. So if I process, you know, submit a claim, how fast can I get that submitted? Mm -hmm. And so they built technology on your phone that would help you submit a claim. And then it went, you know, and then it, that the pictures would go in and a chat bot would get on and start interacting with you and helping you fill out your claim or complete your claim. And then pretty soon they started putting A on the, into the process on the back end where a claim is actually processed. And uh, a few, I don't remember, a few, couple of years ago, they finally did this and people were thinking, okay, we'll improve claims by maybe you get it down from 30 days to 10 days, something like that. They set a world record a few weeks ago to show you their commitment to this, or not a few weeks ago, a few years ago. Uh, they had set a world record for an insurance claim settlement of three seconds. From the time <laughs> the picture was submitted, it was submitted, analyzed, processed, and a check or and money was put into the customer's account in three seconds. That's so now crazy. imagine now that's a, and this company is I don't know, I don't know what they are now but they are uh, you know they are certainly not the largest company in the industry but they've carved out a niche for themselves and they're doing great mm -hmm. stuff. That's the kind of stuff little players have a huge ability. If I was a little player, this is the time to make a jump and really double down on AI because this is your advantage. Now, this is your money ball moment, if you will. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the disadvantage for the incumbents is that they're, they're kind of uh, built into the network or the existing framework um, or, you know, strategic framework. And, you know, maybe they're too large, kind of the old adage, it, it takes a long time to, to turn the battleship, as it were, versus um, yeah. you know, speed little cutters like the, uh, the disruptors here. Um, we are seeing a few large organizations, though. Go ahead. Yeah. And just from the perspective of the boardroom, um, you know, from our knowledge, we know that, um, uh, you know, one of the, I think of the NACD or, uh, you know, S&P 500, uh, there was a survey done earlier this year and it said one of the top skills that is most in demand for board directors, corporate board directors is knowledge and experience with cybersecurity, right? So uh, more boards are, are trying to address problems that maybe they don't have enough internal experience with. 
do you see as a future where the, the board composition, uh, the skills and the diversity and the experience will, will, will I mean, it's got to be an in-demand skill now. I'm sure your, your phone is ringing off the hook. Uh, do you see, you know, that as, as kind of a, a key kind of uh, director skill in the future? Yeah, I, I think it's a key. It should be a key director skill right now. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that, the problem with security, unlike AI that's getting all this attention, the problem with cybersecurity is the last thing people want is attention. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's a great book. If you want to not sleep at night, there's a great book out there called um, this is this is how they tell me the world ends. Um, and it's all about cybersecurity and what's been happening for not just the last couple of years, but the last, you know, 20 years. And it is frightening. That's that's a great way to put it. And it's a it's you know, it's a it's a book anyone can read. You certainly don't need to be. Um, uh, a technology enthusiast, but it'll keep you awake at night. I mm -hmm. promise. It's a great horror book, <laughs> but it talks about what has been happening for the last 20 years. And um, again, it doesn't, cybersecurity never gets the attention that it ought to. And the risks never get the attention that they ought to, because when a company is hacked, everyone is incentivized to downplay it. Yeah. And a lot of times companies don't want to know they've been hacked. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I live by the mandate that it's not if, but when every right. company will get hacked Yeah, and, and you better have a security policy. You better be, um, you better be ready for that. Yeah. And I think most people don't realize the, the kind of the dollar is and, and sense behind it. There's, there's two quotes or two pieces of data that I follow that get updated every year from uh, IBM, their cost of data breach study. Average uh, data breach, you know, that may be from hack or a, a malignant actor within the organization, nearly $10 million. It's around, I think, $9.9 .9 million in the U.S. right now. And then not only that, that's the, the cost to mitigate. That might be lost business, lost, lost credibility, lost brands uh, value. Um, also, you know, uh, you know, two or $300 per record to, to uh, get that data retained or, uh, you know, uh, safely back within the organization. But the, the number that's more frightening to me is that the average time to find that that data breach or that attack has occurred is 270 days, almost a full year uh, before it's even identified within the organization. And even more, um, I think, alarming is that it's often not the organization itself that finds the, the breach. It's it's an outside third party that may be interested or just have some other information that finds the breach. Um, so, yeah, it just it's it's alarming, uh, the frequency and just the increasing severity of these attacks. And it's more alarming when you think what you're referring to are things that were found. We can't even quantify the things that we don't know are there. <laughs> um, and that's why I said it is, it, it's a fantastic book. We don't need to go into it here, but um, just the, the sheer size and scale of, of cyber attacks is incredible. I, I truly believe that a, a, someone that is familiar with cybersecurity which ought to be on every board um, and uh, if you don't have a CISO, chief uh, security officer on board, you need one. Um, right. Or at least to bring in that outside I, expertise as a, con a contributing presenter to the board. Um, yeah. I think that the some organizations. The, the, oh, sorry. Some organizations can get away without this. I think I want to say it was Ferrari that was hacked. It might have been Lamborghini. I can't remember this summer. And no one cared. OK, because you know, what are they going to get from that? Uh, um, no one seemed to care. And it didn't affect their stock price. In contrast, I saw a company two years ago get hacked and uh, their stock price has never recovered more than 50% of where it was. And they'd lost billions. 
um, because they were a technology company related related to cybersecurity, and if, and so um, I believe it's a core. I, I don't think people are aware enough about what is happening and uh, what's what may already be on your networks. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it, it, the other thing that may not be acknowledged: a, that you know, as cybersecurity is a risk, and you know, one of a, a director's chief responsibilities is to uh, mitigate risk and, and um, address risk and have strategies to address risk. Uh, but b, you know, obviously, you mentioned that there's some industries that are more sensitive to that risk than others, but uh, the the width and breadth of uh, cyber attack and cyber activities is is just mind numbing. It's not just uh, security corporations or technology corporations, it's, you know, uh, hospitals being uh, ransomware or even, you know, local municipalities being ransomware for the, the data that's in their systems, uh, higher education, even nonprofit. Um, we have a lot of nonprofit customers on, on board because they're board-led organizations. Um, those nonprofits hold PII. They have donor lists. They have uh, personally identifiable information that is um, a goal of, of cyber attackers. Um, so, yeah, it, just to prove the point that there's no uh, no industry or sector that's just completely immune to cyber yeah. attacks or cyber risk, and to the to the additional point that you know the uh, both the benefit and the risk of AI will probably have a, a similarly disruptive um, impact. Yeah, yeah. If you take payments from customers, which I think all of us do, you have a risk. Um, or if mm -hmm. you have data that uh, could expose, like hospital data, anything that could expose the private information, you have risk. So, uh, you know, cybersecurity is, and that's why I love what the NAIC is doing, um, because we're looking at the crossover between AI and, and that, and uh, we're trying to figure out what are the impacts. Can we use AI to, you know, reduce the costs of security, of managing security for, you mentioned non-for-profit, not, uh, not-for-profits. Um, you know, not everyone can afford this. It is not a cheap, AI and cybersecurity are not cheap. And the people mm -hmm. that that operate those are some of the most expensive salaried employees you could possibly have. And so we're trying to find ways that to democratize it, or at least bring it down so that if we can automate it or have AI assist or things like that. And there's great companies. You know, we're not building that technology. We're monitoring the companies who are and looking at that and trying to recommend best practices. And, uh, you know, I would encourage any organization. This is an open membership. So I would encourage any organization that would like to, to join the NAI, the, the uh, National AI and Cybersecurity ISO and become a member. And you can we can familiarize yourself with both both thing, things, AI and cybersecurity at the same time. That's great. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just with the executive order you mentioned, it, it, you kind of outlined some, some pillars or some themes that, you know, even if you're not experiencing the disruption right now, you may not foresee it in the future. Those pillars are themes of, you know, is it being used for good? Is it responsible? Is it ethical? Uh, obviously, Microsoft and OpenAI have some really good pillars or just uh, founding principles around responsible and ethical AI that if, if you haven't kind of forayed into that area yet, you can start thinking about those from kind of a more, I guess, philosophical approach or more um, strategic approach uh, rather than just kind of waiting for the, the, the shoe to drop, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about cybersecurity and risk and, and just kind of this looming disruption. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about the, the AI for good and some of the things that you've been cooking up with the <laughs> AI for good innovation factory. Um, so could you just detail what this, uh, the AI for good innovation factory is and how it operates? Yeah. So AI for good was founded by the United Nations and ITT is supporting it. 
Um, and their objective is to really just promote AI, like I said, and use in supporting any of the 17 uh, UN sustainable development goals. So environment, education, um, food, poverty, things like that. And I encourage everyone to go out and look at this. This was started because we saw so many organizations, so many ways that we could apply AI in, in this world. Um, and so we've been looking at in particular, so the Innovation Factory, um, I co-chair the U.S. Innovation Factory. It's technically the Silicon Valley Innovation Factory, but they only have one in the U.S. So right now we're running anyone in the U.S. that is interested in, I'd encourage to find out more. And we do this along with the, the Tortora Breda Institute. And the idea is basically a pitch contest. Uh, we hold it in April, and we want anyone that is using AI, whether they're not-for-profit or for-profit, to achieve or, or that are matched with one of those 17 sustainable development goals uh, to participate in this. And it's a great way for smaller organizations or even mid-sized organizations to get attention for what it is they're doing. Um, and we had some amazing people last year. In fact, we did another podcast with them just last week. Uh, with some of the finalists and uh, some of the examples are, are just astounding. Um, so we've seen people who are uh, one gentleman um, uh, perceive AI as a company out of, or an organization out of uh, Montreal that's working on Alzheimer's and Christian Dansero, uh, who's become a, a, a good friend there is using AI to, to a multimodal AI model to see if they, we can't predict AI or predict Alzheimer's um, several years in advance of when doctors are ready to predict it. And you might think, well, why would we want to do that? Well, doctors are very reticent to predict that someone has Alzheimer's. They don't want to tell a patient or their friend, especially if they're not sure that they have Alzheimer's, but, but there's new medication out. And as I understand it, this new medication can be very effective if we catch it early enough. So we have kind of this, this dynamic where a doctor, a human, really doesn't want to diagnose something because there's a lot of emotion. They don't want to cause extra stress on that person. The person might be a friend. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we can diagnose earlier, we might be able to get some help. So he's developed some, some technology. Um, another uh, group that I've been speaking with recently, a company called Canary, um, is using voice uh, detection to determine if someone has Alzheimer's, depression, uh, and several other things. And they've got about, they're up to about a 90% accuracy uh, rate on some of those. Um, some of the others we've seen in, through the program, um, the winner in the U.S. last year also went on to become the uh, world winner. And uh, it's a company that's predicting preterm births uh, for babies and doing with great accuracy. So they'll take in the normal input from a, uh, from a, uh, what is it called? Sonogram. All right. And mm -hmm. they'll take a normal input from that, that, that doctors are already doing and they'll run it through an AI and they can with greater accuracy determine if a baby has a risk of, of uh, preterm birth. Um, so they're, they will be saving, literally saving lives this, this year as they start applying that. Um, another gentleman uh, from Noble Media um, is the founder, uh, Cedar and I, uh, Milano, Mil Milazzo. Um, anyway, from Noble Media, N-O-B-L, um, has found a way to not just detect fake news, but also an economic model that makes it good for companies 
to detect fake news and not put their advertisements on it. So it's de-incentivizing fake news, if you will. So it's not just a great AI model, it's a great economic model and it doesn't harm people. It's not, you know, we're not saying we're gonna censor, we're not gonna do all these things. It's a nice, great balance. And he's doing all this with AI. And so these are some of the examples, just incredible people um, that are doing incredible things with AI. And we want more of them. So our contest is in April. Um, we, I believe that we are, it is open now for application. Uh, and if you look for uh, the AI for good Silicon Valley innovation contest, if you just type that into Google, you'll find it. Um, and uh, we are accepting applications now. We'd love to hear from anyone using this technology to do good things for humans. I love that. There's yeah. just so uh, much we can do. Yeah, we'll obviously include a link to this in the, in the show notes when we, we publish the podcast. I, mean, I wanted to key in on one thing you, you mentioned there, and that's certainly AI in the, in the healthcare realm. That um, it, it's just a really powerful example. I think you know it, your your average physician is you know twelve years in school, maybe another two years in a fellowship, and then you know they become a rookie doctor, and then they have a uh, a long career. But uh, there's a finite am amount of patients and or um, maladies that they're going to see. Um, you know, that, but AI has, you know, been trained on, on millions and millions of cases and millions and millions of, of disease and, and pattern recognition. And that really, it speaks to the, one of the, the true kind of uh, potentials of AI is that you can use all of the experience and, and point it towards something really acute. And it has all this information behind it. Um, yeah. I think there's some, some corollaries there, especially in the boardroom and, you know, finance, those types of things. Uh, but I, I just think that's a really uh, interesting point of view that, that AI is a, a better predictor of health outcomes than, than humans. Yeah, you no, know, we, we can find things that humans just can't detect. Um, you know, I, I love my favorite example, and this isn't health, but, you know, the new Amazon predictions on sports, they're now predicting whether someone's going to blitz. That, oh, interesting. And, and you're thinking, you know, and, and there's running back, professional running backs that can't read decode this the secret moves you know maybe someone moved their foot maybe someone jumped and so but applied to medical i truly believe we're going to see a period of medical innovation like we haven't seen in years mm -hmm. um, this is going to be the new penicillin it is we're going to see a wave of solving real issues i'm talking with people that are right now that are that are doing individualized cancer treatments with ai and mm -hmm. obviously Alzheimer's and, and uh, you know, just health in general. Um, we're finding, you know, and, and these are not these new language models. These are, this is AI that's been around for a while, but this is a perfect example of old technology being applied in new ways because now we also have the data um, yeah. and people are figuring it out. That's awesome. Well, Tim, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. I, I think this is just a really just uh, just kind of inspiring discussion and just a, a, a new look. Um, uh, last question for you. Uh, how did you get your first board seat? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it, I guess it depends on what you count as a board seat. But um, I love education. I, I have been on an educational board at, at uh, one of the universities. Um, and I wasn't even an alma, it wasn't even my alma mater. Um, so universities, medical, and I'm on the board of the NAIC. Mainly it's been, it, it's been a technology focus. People recognized a very specific skill that they needed on the board and said, you know, we've got to have this at this point. And so um, 
yeah, that that really was it. I have a, a unique set of skills, <laughs> right? Um, a unique set of skills, and and Liam Neeson and take in there. <laughs> yeah, and it hasn't hurt. It hasn't hurt that my crossover is kind of cybersecurity and AI. Um, yeah, because both of those are so important with for boards and companies to understand at this point. So that's kind of that's for me. That's been the that's been the entry point. That's great. Well, Tim Cap, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really glad to have you, and, and thank you for really, uh, the thought-provoking uh, discussion. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Josh.